Welcome to the uh, Seven Sense and the Activate You Combined High Intelligence and Knowledge Podcast. The information that I will be sharing openly with my audience and the audience tuning in from around the world is from various sources. These sources will be left anonymous to protect their identity because what we're talking about here challenges the very core foundation of the principles upon which societies are built and governments are put in place in order to regulate them. I'm not going to mince my words here. I'm not going to try to whitewash this. I'm certainly not going to sanitize like most media across the world at the moment. I'm hoping that if nothing else, putting the information out there, making it readily available for people to hear, to absorb, to decide if it resonates for themselves, is the only thing, is the only agenda I have here. I have no other agenda other than being able to disseminate this information in the most sentient manner I know how in an effort to ensure that one voice, one heart, one unified higher octave of energy is available for people to tune into and align to. And we're going to start this series of broadcasts by exploding myths myths that have been sold to the population of Earth as fact, as actual course of events. When in reality, most of these stories, if not all, in some way, shape or form, represent a fairly well-executed smokescreen to hide, mask, and cover the truth. The myth of German villainy is a travesty, is a fagazi to a greater degree. After traveling around most of Europe, Germany emerges as one of my favorite countries, in particular Bavaria in Austria, where I've experienced many, many happy memories, remains very much a go-to destination and certainly a destination I, I wish to revisit if I ever get the chance as a sovereign being living in a controlled police state right now. During my visit, I found the German people to be pleasant, industrious, disciplined and civilised with many similarities to traditional Australians, Americans and other Europeans. They in no way resemble the stereotypes depicted in all the anti-Nazi movies, books and articles that we've been subjected to over the years. I am 56 years of age as I write these words. My generation grew up virtually inundated with anti-German propaganda. We were taught quite literally to hate the Germans as a people, yet Germans I have met or befriended through the years seem no different from other Europeans or even Americans and or Australians. And they seem no more inclined to violence and militarism than anyone else, if anything, less. I've never detected anything that might be considered intrinsically wrong with the German character. They are a highly cultured, highly civilized people in every respect. When studied objectively, even Germany's leaders in the 1930s and 40s were not very different from other European leaders. They were only made out to be different by the relentless hate propaganda directed against them. Germany suffered more than any other country by far as a result of World War II. 
Some 160 of her large cities and towns were completely destroyed by the Allied bombing campaign and perhaps as many as 20 million Germans lost their lives as a result of the war. Yet no one wants to hear their tales of suffering and no sympathy has been allowed the defeated and disgraced Germans. The anti-German propaganda has cultivated the general feeling that they got what they deserved. The entire responsibility for starting both wars and for all the death and destruction resulting from them has been assigned to the Germans, though the facts don't bear that out. Because they were the losers of both world wars, they were never permitted to present their case before the world court, nor to tell their side of the story through any medium. The winners of wars, after all, write the history books. Neither did the true story of what happened during the war come out in the Nuremberg trials. The Nuremberg trials were nothing more than Soviet-style show trials which violated every standard of traditional British and or American justice. Their purpose was not to discover guilt or innocence, but to spread a legal gloss over a decision which had already been made to execute Germans' leaders. The entire Nuremberg circus was a sham and a travesty. The anti-German propaganda used to create the climate of hatred that made the massive destruction and the mass slaughter of German civilians possible continued relentlessly long after the war was over, when it would seem natural for sober-minded historians to begin to moderate their extreme views about Germany. The fantastic atrocity stories continue even today. One needs only to tune into the History Channel to see them repeated again and again. In contrast, World War I was not long over before the atrocity stories attributed to the Germans during that war were exposed as the deliberate lies they were. Responsible men conducted through investigations and found that none of it was true. All the lurid stories were deliberately fabricated to win British public support for the war against Germany and also to bring America into the war. But a different factor was in play after World War II to keep the phony horror stories alive, which did not exist after World War I. After W2, the Jews exploited the anti-German world sentiment which they themselves had largely created with their propaganda to justify the creation of their long sought after State of Israel as a homeland for the Jewish people. Through manipulation of the international information media, the Jews won worldwide sympathy for themselves with their sensational stories of unique Jewish suffering at the hands of the cruel Germans. They claimed that Germany had followed a systematic plan to exterminate all of Europe's Jews and that by war's end had managed to kill six million of them. The alleged method was to round the Jews up from all over Europe, haul them in trains to so-called death camps where they were herded into gas chambers and killed and their bodies then burned in giant crematoria which conveniently left no forensic evidence of what had happened. In the absence of forensic evidence, eyewitness testimony, no matter how bizarre, sufficed to convict Germany and to make her the pariah of civilised nations. The judges at the Nuremberg trials were themselves not immune to the torrents of anti-German hate propaganda and were already predisposed before the trials ever began to believe any horror story, no matter how fantastic, about the Germans. Another factor which preordained the outcome of the trials was that the accusers also served as investigators, prosecutors and final judges. The trials were also permeated throughout with an atmosphere of Jewish vengeance seeking. Just behind the Gentile front men, most of the lawyers, prosecutors and investigators were Jews. Hundreds of Jews who could barely speak English disported themselves in American army officer uniforms. Two of the eight Nuremberg judges were Jews, Robert Falco of France and Lieutenant Colonel A.F. Volchow, real name Berkman of the Soviet Union. The general prosecutor for the High Court was Dr. Jakob 
Meistenser as a Jew. Their dominance and control of the trials was blatant. Even the hangman for the ten Nazi leaders sentenced to death, Master Sergeant John C. Woods, was a Jew, and the hangings took place on October 16, 1946, the Jewish holiday of Purim. In the Book of Easter, the ten sons of Haman and the enemy of the Jews were hanged on Purim Day. According to Louis Marshalko, a wartime Hungarian journalist, who wrote about the trials, out of 3,000 people employed on the staff at the Nuremberg courts, 2,400 were Jews. The Holocaust story that we all know so well today was developed during the Nuremberg trials. By skillfully cultivating and propagating this Holocaust story, the Jews have been able to extort hundreds of billions of dollars out of Germany and the United States much of which was used to fund the new state of Israel. The claim that the Jews in Israel made the desert bloom was true. They did it with German and American money. They are now hard at work extorting more billions out of other European countries in what has been contemptuously but correctly called the Holocaust industry. Even now, more than half a million so-called Holocaust survivors living mainly in Israel and the United States receive lifetime pensions from the German government. And what is a Holocaust survivor? Any Jew who lived anywhere in German-controlled territory at any time during the war, whether living in a concentration camp or in the lap of luxury, is considered a Holocaust survivor and therefore eligible for a German pension. Moreover, any Jew who was forced to leave Europe during the Nazi era is a Holocaust survivor. Christian survivors of the war, no matter how horrific their experience, are not eligible for pensions. Shoah is the Hebrew word for Holocaust. It has been joked around that there is no business like Shoah business. The entire Holocaust racket has become nothing so much as a vast shakedown of European countries, especially Germany. The Holocaust story has other uses as well. It is routinely invoked to disarm the general public from defending itself against Jewish predations. Prime Minister Netanyahu regularly invokes the Holocaust to justify Israeli attacks upon its neighbours. Keeping this gravy train going requires the continued legitimization of Jews as history's ultimate victim group, which in turn requires an ultimate victimizer of the Jews and Germany has been designated to fill that role in perpetuity. The Jewish Controlled History Channel, or the Hitler Channel as it's sometimes derisively called, owes its success to endlessly repeating these anti-German propaganda programs. Any modification or revision of this carefully cultivated image of Germany as the evil monster of history, and particularly as the evil victimizer of the Jews, would threaten the entire Holocaust story. Therefore, this image is jealously and carefully guarded by the Jewish-controlled press and information media, and woe upon anyone who dares to question it. Anyone who does so is immediately attacked and smeared as a deranged anti-Semite. The Jews are also unwilling to relinquish or even to moderate their quest for revenge. Old men who have suffered all their lives as fugitives are still being tracked down as war criminals and either brought to justice or summarily murdered on the spot. They call it vengeance and justify it accordingly. The only crime these old men may be guilty of was being an officer or soldier in the German army during the war. But why, one might ask, amidst all the carnage, death and destruction that occurred during World War II, as the so-called Holocaust emerged as the central atrocity story. Approximately 50, 55 million people died during the war, only a tiny percentage of them Jews. Surely only a fraction of the six million claimed. All other combatant nationalities have long since put the war behind them and have tried to make peace with their former enemies, but not the Jews. Two-thirds of a century has gone by, but the Jews are still nourishing their grievances, still building Holocaust museums and memorials 
at the expense of various governments and still investigating new ways to extort money out of various countries as legitimate compensation. But why should only the Jews be compensated? Scores of millions of other people across Europe lost everything in the war. The Holocaust has evolved over the years to become the national myth of the Jewish people with all the characteristics of a religion complete with its very own Satan, Hitler. The Holocaust myth is the glue that holds the Jewish people together as a distinct nationality and because of that they carefully guard and protect it. As a consequence the poor Germans are consigned in perpetuity to the role of history's evil monster regardless of what the actual facts may or may not be. But even if all the stories of German atrocities during World War II were true in every detail, they would still not compare in their inhumanity to the atrocities committed against the Germans. The indiscriminate saturation bombing of German cities, the brutal expulsion of entire German populations after the war, the Allied imposed post-war deprivations, the Soviet massacres and political liquidations simply dwarfed the Holocaust in their destruction of human life and the destruction of the accumulated works of human civilization. Any final accounting and balancing of the destruction of the accumulated works conduct all combatants during World War II could only result in the exaltation of Germany as uniquely barbarous in her methods of waging war or in her treatment of subject populations. The German people were devastated by the war to a greater extent than any other participant, including the Jews, while at the same time they have been stigmatised as the evil predatory perpetrators of the war. They have been made to pay a terrible price for atrocities during the war, which may never have occurred, or at least never occurred to the extent alleged. It is becoming clearer as time goes by that the Germans were the real victims of both World Wars I and II, and still continue to be. As a result of losing two apocalyptic world wars, Germany has acquired a reputation as the evil nation of Europe, and perhaps the evil nation of all time. Just mentioning the word German still brings forth an image in the mind's eye of robotic, goose-stepping stormtroopers under the command of stiff-necked Prussian officers ready to march off to inflict gratuitous murder and destruction upon their peace-loving neighbours. We have been brainwashed by relentless propaganda to regard the Germans as intrinsically militaristic, aggressive, brutish, racist and anti-Semitic, with a predilection for blind obedience to authority figures. Hundreds of Hollywood movies, relentless Holocaust propaganda and countless books and magazine articles have permanently reinforced this negative image of Germany in the popular mind. Rational motives for the inexplicable horrors Germans are accused of having routinely committed are not required. It is axiomatic that their evil nature explains it at all. Consider the movie Schindler's List by the Jewish director Steven Spielberg, for example, the Nazi commandant of the concentration camp, supposedly the Plasko camp outside of Krakow, not far from Auschwitz, is standing shirtless on the balcony of his house with a hunting rifle over his bare shoulders. The rifle is equipped with a telescopic sight. In the movie, the house is located on a hill above the camp so that he can look down on the throngs of prisoners milling around in the compound below. He lifts the rifle to his shoulder and through the telescope begins casually scanning from one prisoner to another. The image through the telescope now fills the movie screen. The crosshairs of the scope stop on a randomly selected prisoner. He pulls the trigger and the prisoner drops to the ground, dead. The screen then cuts back to the Nazi commandant to show bored insuance as he actuates the bolt of his rifle and casually raises it back to his shoulder. He fires again and again. A prisoner drops to the ground dead. Bored with his target practice, 
he turns his attention to the beautiful, sexy naked woman lying on a bed just inside the house from the balcony. The woman is purportedly one of his Jewish housemaids, selected from the camp, who also apparently serves as his sex slave. His face expresses disdainful, though lackadaisical, cynicism. The point of the shootings, as well as bringing in the naked Jewish housemaid, is to show the Nazi officer as totally depraved, without conscience, morality or empathy for other humans. In short, a psychopath. It is presumed, of course, that the murdered prisoners were all Jews. Two popular Jewish themes are combined here, Nazi evil and Jewish persecution. This episode is entirely fictional, based on a novel by Thomas Keneally, an Australian who only visited the concentration camps once in 1980. No such actual event as described above has ever been recorded, yet the vast majority of moviegoers swallow it whole and accept it as actual history. The real Plasco camp was located on the other side of a hill from the commandant house and completely out of sight from the commandant's balcony. It would have been impossible for him to shoot down into the compound as shown in the movie, even if he had been inclined to do so, which is highly unlikely. The actual commandant of Plaskow, Eamon Goeth, on which the character in the movie was based, lived in the house with his fiancée Ruth Calder, with whom he had a child. Ruth said that they intended to marry, but were unable to do so due to the chaos at the end of the war. She had her name and the child's name changed to Goeth after the war with the help of Eamon Goeth's father. Eamon Goeth was hanged after the war by the Polish government, primarily for being a member of the Nazi party and a member of the Waffen-SS, not for shooting prisoners. Ruth described Eamon Goeth as a cultured man who had a beautifully singing voice. Goeth did indeed have two Jewish housemaids selected from the camp, while he was commandant, but there is no information that he had untoward relations with them. The story was only included to add spice to the movie. Another example is the movie Sophie's Choice by another Jewish director, Alan J. Pakula, in which Sophie and her two small children are sent to Auschwitz. Auschwitz is the holy temple of Holocaust law. During the selection process, the selection is now one of the stations of the cross of the Holocaust religion. Immediately after their arrival, Sophie is told by a stereotypically evil Nazi officer, supposedly Dr. Joseph Mengele of Auschwitz notoriety, that she can only keep one of her children and the other one must go to the gas chamber. She is forced to choose which one to keep and which one to be sent to the gas chamber, hence Sophie's choice. The evil Nazi officer provides no reason or explanation for requiring one child to die or for forcing her to make this heart-rending choice. But he is an evil Nazi is presumed to be explanation enough. This preposterous movie was based on a novel by the American Southern writer William Styron, who had no first-hand knowledge of the camps. Auschwitz was simply used as the setting for a tale which came out of his imagination. Nothing of the sort ever happened in real life. Yet evil Nazi stories such as these have long been a staple in Hollywood. The movie-going public has been so conditioned by this poppycock that fiction has become fact in the public mind. We have all been brainwashed to accept such absurdities without scepticism. Germans are evil, so they do evil things. No further explanation is necessary. Yet Germany was not always seen in this light. The image of Germany as a sinister, predatory, warlike nation only took root in the 20th century. 19th century Germany, by contrast, was seen as a place of peace and enlightenment. The English historian Frederick William Maitland described the way the English people saw the Germans during the 19th century. It was unusual and plausible 
to paint the German as an unpractical, dreamy, sentimental being looking out with mild blue eyes into a cloud of music and metaphysics and tobacco smoke. The highly influential French writer and salon matron Madame de Stael portrayed the German during the period of the Napoleonic Wars as a nation of poets and thinkers, a race of kindly, impractical, otherworldly dreamers without national prejudices and disinclined to war. The Americans also held a benign opinion of the Germans prior to the 20th century. The American historian Henry Cord Mayer wrote, whether seen in the newly united nation, Germany was united into one nation in 1871, or in this country, German immigrants in the United States. The Germans were generally regarded as methodical and energetic people who were models of progress, while in their devotion to music, education, science and technology, they aroused the admiration and emulation of Americans. In 1905, Andrew Dixon White, a noted American historian, educator and United States ambassador to Germany wrote just nine years before the outbreak of World War I. Germany from a great confused mass of warriors and thinkers and workers, militant and at cross purposes, wearing themselves out in vain struggles and preyed upon by malevolent neighbours, has become a great power in arms, in art, in science, in literature, a fortress of high thought, a guardian of civilization, the natural ally of every nation which seeks the better development of humanity. The German people have historically made great contributions in every sphere of cultural, intellectual and scientific achievement. In the field of music there were such 18th century geniuses as Bach, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert and Schumann to name a few. This musical genius continued in the 19th century with the Strauss, Mahler and Richard Wagner. There were the literary contributions of Goethe and Schiller the historical works of Rank and Niebuhr, the philosophical studies of Kant and Hegel, and the great scientific contributions of Alexander von Humboldt and William Conrad Röntgen. These are only a few examples of a very long list. The Prussian system of higher education and the cultural flowering which characterised Prussia during the years following the Napoleonic Wars greatly influenced both Europe and America. The American public school system, as well as our university system, was deliberately modelled after the Prussian public school system and university system. Germany was admired by the world as a centre of learning for its high culture and for its achievements in every field, but also for its culture of honesty, hard work, orderliness and thrift, which existed even at the lowest level of society. British scholars and journalists had been very favourably disposed towards all things German, including their history, culture and institutions throughout the 19th century. The highly respected Cambridge historian Herbert Butterfield commented extensively on Britain's high regard for Germany. In England the view once prevailed that German history was particularly the history of freedom, for it was a story that comprised federation parliament, autonomous cities, Protestantism and a law of liberty carried by German colonies to the Slavonic East. In those days it was the Latin states which were considered to be congenial to authoritarianism, clinging to the papacy, papacy in Italy, the Inquisition in Spain and the Bonapartist dictatorships in militaristic France. The reversal of this view in the 20th century and its replacement by a common opinion that Germany had been the aggressor and enemy of freedom throughout all the ages will no doubt be the subject of historical research itself, someday especially as it seems to have coincided so closely with a change in British foreign policy. <clears throat> Up to the early 1900s when historical scholarship in England came to its peak in men like Acton and Maitland, words can hardly describe the admiration for Germany and the confessed discipleship 
which existed among English historians. And then British author Thomas Arnold, June 13, 1795 to June 12, 1842, saw Germany not as a nation with a unique predisposition towards authoritarianism and regimentation, but rather as a cradle of law, virtue and freedom, and considered it a distinction of the first rank that the English belonged to the Germanic family of peoples. This view of Germany was to change almost overnight with the outbreak of World War I. After the war began in 1914, a grotesque image of a rapacious, bloodthirsty and uniquely aggressive Germany quickly took form and became the stereotypical image of Germany in Europe and America. The new image of Germany was the direct result of a virulent anti-German propaganda campaign conducted by the British government and later joined in unison by the United States, in which deliberate and systematic lies, distortions and false atrocity stories were disseminated to the British and American public. The emotions of both the British and American publics were deliberately whipped up to a fever pitch of hatred for the Hun a pathologically hostility towards all things German, which later became such a familiar and integral part of Western thinking about Germany, had its birth in this skillful propaganda campaign. After World War II, historian Harry Paxton Howard examined this transformation of Germany's reputation, which began immediately after the start of World War I. It was made out, he said, that Germany was not only evil, but had always been that way, and that Germany, contrary to the facts, had always been the historical enemy of Europe and America. He wrote, Actually, in the literal sense of the word, the biggest job of revising history was done during the First World War, when our histories were completely revised to show that Germany had always been our enemy, that Germany had started the war in 1914, that Germany had even started the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, and that in the Revolutionary War we had not been fighting the British, but the Hessens, not to mention such things as the Germans cutting the hands off Belgian babies instead of the Belgians cutting off the hands of Congolese. This was a rather real revision of our histories, which has distorted the American mind for more than 40 years. Harry Paxton Howard all belligerents, of course, including Germany, use propaganda against their enemies, as all belligerents have done in all wars throughout history. But the propaganda efforts of Germany and the central powers were amateurish and ineffectual compared to the British. In their propaganda efforts, the Germans tended to appeal to reason instead of to the emotions. They never portrayed their enemies as bloodthirsty, inhuman beasts. The Allies, Great Britain in particular by contrast, proved themselves masters at adroitly manipulating world opinion by widespread propagation of fantastic tales of German villainy. From the beginning of the war, stories of German atrocities filled British and American newspapers. American newspapers depended at that time on British news services for most of their news stories about Europe which came across undersea cables controlled by Britain. The Germans had no access to the American media. Great Britain made sure of that by cutting Germany's six transatlantic cables to America. The first atrocity stories came out of the German march through Belgium at the beginning of the war. Germany's purpose was not to attack Belgium per se, but to pass through Belgium in order to outflank French defences and then make a drive towards Paris. This strategy was known as the Schlieffen Plan, which the Germans believed was the only way to achieve a quick victory over France. Germany's violation of neutral Belgium served as Britain's pretext for going to war against Germany. Though the decision to go to war for other reasons, mainly economic, had already been made. Belgium was only a pretext to enter the war it was necessary to win public support and the propaganda opportunities resulting from Germany's invasion of Belgium as well as the fabricated stories of German atrocities in Belgium served that purpose well. 
eyewitnesses were found who described hairy-knuckled Huns in pickle-hulb helmets, tossing Belgian babies in the air and catching them on their bayonets as they marched along, singing war songs. Stories of German soldiers amputating the hands of Belgian boys were widely reported, reputedly to prevent them from firing rifles. Tales of women with their breasts cut off multiplied even faster. There were also tales of crucifixions of Allied soldiers. Europeans and Americans were more religious than they are today, and the crucifixion stories aroused outrage. It should be mentioned that all forms of evidence accepted in modern courts of law, eyewitness testimony, is considered the least reliable of all. But rape stories were the favourite of all atrocity tales. One eyewitness described how the Germans dragged 20 young women out of their houses in a captured Belgian town and stretched them on tables in the village square where each was raped by at least 12 Huns while the rest of the soldiers watched and cheered. After being fed a steady diet of this kind of propaganda, the British public veritably demanded revenge against the loathsome Hun. A group of Belgians toured the United States at British government expense, telling these stories to Americans. Britain wanted to draw the United States into the war. This was a perfect way to do it, and President Woodrow Wilson solemnly received the group in the White House. The propaganda portrayed Britain as a knight on a white horse, coming to the defence of violated neutral Belgium. This was cynical manipulation of public opinion, of course, because Germany had not violated Belgian neutrality, Britain would have done so without a second thought. Germany angrily denied all of these stories. So did American reporters who were with the German army and knew that they were lies. But these denials did not find their way into American newspapers. The British controlled what went into American papers, and it was the British who were generating the atrocity stories. To enhance the credibility of these fantastic atrocity stories, the British government asked Viscount Bryce early in 1915 to head a royal commission to conduct an investigation. The British government, of course, intended that Bryce would support this false propaganda, which he obediently did. Bryce was a well-known historian with a good reputation in America. He not only had served as the British ambassador in Washington, but had written several complimentary books about the American government. The British knew that he was highly respected and admired in America and that he had a reputation for rectitude and honesty. America would believe whatever he said. Bryce was also intensely loyal to his own country and therefore perfectly fit for the job. Bryce and his six fellow commissioners all lawyers, historians and legal scholars analysed, if you can call it that, 1,200 depositions of eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen these German atrocities firsthand. Almost all of the eyewitness accounts came from Belgians who had left Belgium for England as refugees, though some accounts also come from British soldiers in France. The Commission never interrogated a single one of these eyewitnesses, but relied on their written statements instead shades of the Nuremberg trials after the next war. Since there was a war on, there were no on-site investigations of any reported atrocity. Not a single witness was identified by name, including the soldiers who had provided written accounts. Yet, the commission officially confirmed that all the atrocity stories, no matter how fantastic, were true. This bogus investigation was just another part of Britain's anti-German propaganda campaign. The Bryce Report was released on May 13, 1915, and the British government made sure I went to every, it went to every newspaper in America. The impact was phenomenal, especially coming just after the torpedoing of the British liner Lusitania, which caused the deaths of 135 Americans. Americans from coast to coast were outraged, a wave of revulsion for all things German swept the country. Hatred of Germans reached fever pitch. Suddenly the American public was clamouring for war. There is well-founded suspicion that the Lusitania was set up as a decoy 
by the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, deliberately exposing it to a German submarine attack for the purpose of bringing America into the war. But there were sceptics of the Bryce report. In England, Sir Roger Caseman called the report a lie and wrote a report of his own refuting it, though no one paid much attention. The American lawyer Clarence Darrow was so sceptical that he travelled to France in 1915 and searched in vain for a single eyewitness who could confirm even one of the Bryce stories. Increasingly dubious, Darrow announced that he would pay $1,000, equivalent to around 25000 today, to anyone who could produce a Belgian boy whose hands had been amputated by a German soldier or any other Belgian or French victim who had been mutilated by German troops. None were found. The proofs provided by the Bryce Committee in its investigation, as well as the methods employed in gathering them, violated every elementary rule of evidence. Careful scholars have long since demonstrated that the entire report was made up of nothing more than distortions and outright falsehoods. But Britain was determined to pull the United States into the war and Bryce and his colleagues were willing accomplices in that effort. They justified their lies and exaggerations because it served the higher cause of Mother England. After the war, most historians dismissed 99% of Bryce's atrocities as pure fabrications. One called the report, in itself, one of the worst atrocities of the war. After the war, recounts Thomas Fleming in his book, Illusion of Victory, historians who sought to examine the documentation for Bryce stories were told that the files had mysteriously disappeared. As the war drew on, another fabricated story was widely circulated. It was reported that the Germans were operating a corpse factory where the bodies of both German and Allied soldiers killed in battle were supposedly melted down for fats and other products useful to the German war effort. The Germans were accused of making soap out of human fat. Human skins were used to make fine leather goods such as lampshades, driving gloves and riding breeches. The bones of these corpses were said to have been ground up and used as fertiliser on German farms. A detailed account of this so-called corpse factory appeared in the highly respected British newspaper The Times on April 17, 1917. According to the story, trains full of corpses arrived at a large factory. The bodies were attached to hooks connected to an endless chain. The article carefully described the process inside the corpse factory. The bodies are transported on this endless chain into a long narrow compartment where they pass through a bath which disinfects them. They then go through a drying chamber and finally are automatically carried into a digester or great cauldron in which they are dropped by an apparatus which detaches from the chain. In the digester they remain from six to eight hours and are treated by steam which breaks them up while they are slowly stirred by the machinery. From this treatment result several products. The fats are broken up into stearin, a form of tallow and oils <coughs> which require to be redistilled before they can be used. The process of distillation is carried out by boiling the oil with carbonate of soda and some of the byproducts resulting from this are used by German soap makers. The oil distillery and refinery lie in the southeastern corner of the works. The refined oil is sent out in small casks like those used for petroleum and is of a yellowish brown colour. Note the meticulous detail. The story was a total fabrication, but it was a plausible story, especially with all the detail and it was not possible for the Germans to completely refute it while the war was still going on. After the war, of course, the story was exposed as the lie it was. No such corpse factory existed. It is interesting that the story of making soap out of bodies emerged again during World War II, when the Germans supposedly made soap out of Jewish corpses. That lie is still widely believed and remains a staple of Jewish Holocaust propaganda. The lampshades out of human skin story 
also had its origin in World War I and emerged again during World War II when Germans were supposedly making lampshades out of Jewish skin. There was nothing to it, yet it also remains a staple of Jewish Holocaust propaganda. The purpose of war propaganda, historian Thomas Fleming in his book, The Illusion of Victory, observes, as peddled by both the Anglo and American elite, was to create a widespread public image of Germans as monsters capable of appalling sadism, thereby coating an appeal to murderous collective hatred with a lacquer of sanctimony. The trick, said Fleming, is to leave the target audience at once, shivering in horror at a spectacle of subhuman depravity, panting with a visceral desire for vengeance and rapturously self-righteous about the purity of its humane motives. People who succumb to it are easily subsumed into a hive mind of officially sanctioned hatred and prepared to perpetuate crimes even more hideous than those that they believe typify the enemy. The Bryce Report, as well as all the other anti-German propaganda, unquestionably helped England win the war. It convinced millions of Americans and other neutrals that the Germans were beasts in human form, and this, as much as anything else, helped bring America into the war. But there were adverse consequences, consequences to this lurid atrocity propaganda campaign. It poisoned public opinion against the Germans to such an extent that it could not be undone. It was an obvious factor, for example, in the British decision to maintain the total blockade of Germany for seven months after the war was over which, incidentally, was a violation of international law. The blockade caused a million German civilians to starve to death, an unbearable suffering of millions more. The blockade itself was far and away the great atrocity of World War I, though it receives very little publicity, and it was done not by the evil Germans, but by the rather saintly British. By creating blind hatred of Germany, the anti-German propaganda campaign also contributed to the harsh peace terms imposed on Germany at the end of the war, which then sowed the seeds of World War II. Though historians and other scholars have exposed these German atrocity stories as nonsense, the image of German villainy has remained fixed. The benign world opinion of Germany which existed right up to 1914 was replaced overnight by the myth of unique German savagery which left a permanent residue of Germanophobia deep in Western minds, even today. This explains why our boys were so willing to obliterate whole German cities and kill hundreds of thousands of German civilians with air bombardments during the Second World War. This hate propaganda, as false as it was, also had the effect of totally demoralising the German people. The long stalemate which World War I became would most likely have ended in a negotiated peace with no winner and no loser if the United States had stayed out of it. But the combined weight of British, French and American armies in October 1918 was more than the Central Powers could withstand and one after another began to seek a way to pull out of the war. Bulgaria signed an armistice on September 29, Turkey at the end of October, and Austria-Hungary signed on November the 3rd. The British starvation blockade of Germany was taking a terrible toll, which eventually caused Germany to begin to crumble from within. Faced with the prospect of putting to sea to fight the British blockade, the sailors of the German high seas fleet stationed at Kiel mutinied on October 29th. They had been persuaded by agitators that such an attack would be a suicide mission. Within a few days, the entire city of Kiel was under their control and the revolution then spread throughout the country. On November 9, the Kaiser abdicated and slipped across the border into exile in the Netherlands. A German republic was declared to replace the monarchy and peace feelers were then extended to the Allies. At 5am on the morning of November 11th, 1918, an armistice between Germany 
and the Allies were signed in a railway car parked in a French forest near the front lines. At 11am that same day, the armistice became effective. After more than four years of bloody fighting, the Great War had come to an end. But what had it all been for? No combatant nation gained from it, at least nothing remotely worth the sacrifices made. The accumulated wealth of Europe, the result of decades of peace, was completely dissipated and replaced by crushing national debt. The war had been a horrific experience unlike anything Europeans had ever experienced before, leaving them psychologically, economically and politically devastated. Before the war, all of Europe had become to believe that a steady continuing improvement in the conditions of life was the inexorable trend of history. That generalised belief was replaced by a feeling of pessimism and cynicism. There was the feeling that Europe had been profoundly and permanently damaged, a feeling that turned out to be highly prescient in retrospect. Ancient empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian-Prussian Empire, the German Empire, crumbled as a result of the war. These empires had been the source of political and social stability, and now chaos reigned throughout Europe. The Paris Peace Conference after the war did a very imperfect job of putting it all back together again. It is clear from the perspective of today that World War I precipitated an irreversible decline in Western civilization. In addition to these adverse psychological and political consequences, there was also a considerable amount of physical destruction. Vast areas of northeastern France had been reduced to considerable rubble. Flanders in Belgium had been all but destroyed and the ancient city of Ypres was completely devastated. The homes of 750,000 French people had been destroyed and the infrastructure of the entire region had been severely damaged. Roads, coal mines and telegraph poles had been destroyed, greatly hindering the area's ability to recover and begin to function normally again. <coughs> but all of that was insignificant compared to the massive industrialised slaughter of human beings. Nearly every family in Europe had lost a family member. If not a father, a son, brother or husband, then a cousin of one degree or another. All combatant countries suffered casualties never experienced before in all of history. The British, for example, suffered 50,000 casualties in a single afternoon at the Battle of Paschendiachia and 350,000 casualties before the battle finally ended. The battle ended with no ground gained and no ground lost. The entire trench war was characterised by mass suicidal attacks against entrenched machine guns and by massive artillery barrages which blew their targets to smithereens. This was mechanised industrial death. Nothing on this scale had ever happened before. The scale of the slaughter can be appreciated by the numbers listed below. Allied casualties. Britain, 885,000 soldiers killed. 1,663,000 wounded. France, 1,400,000 soldiers killed, 2,500,000 wounded. Belgium, 50,000 soldiers killed, 45,000 wounded. Italy, 651,000 soldiers killed, 954,000 wounded. Russia, 1, 1,811,000 soldiers killed, 5 million wounded. America, 117,000 soldiers killed, 206,000 wounded. The Central Powers casualties. Germany, 2,037,000 soldiers killed, 4,250,000 wounded. Austria-Hungary, 1,200,000 soldiers killed, 3,600,000 wounded. Turkey, 800,000 soldiers killed, 
400,000 wounded. Bulgaria, 100,000 soldiers killed, 152,000 wounded. The number of soldiers killed on all sides totaled 9.7 million with 21 million wounded. Of the wounded, millions were maimed for life and unable to work or return to any form of neutral normalcy. Nearly 7 million civilians on all sides lost their lives. To put it into greater perspective post-war, the Versailles Treaty would be the core convergence at which the travesty became most apparent. The lurid anti-German propaganda campaign conducted by Britain and America throughout the war had created such hatred for the Germans that a harsh peace was virtually inevitable. Germany, rightly or wrongly, was to be held accountable for the war, including all the death and destruction resulting from it, and Germany would be required to pay for all of it. As if the war itself were not enough, during mid-1918, Europe was hit by Spanish flu, causing the deaths of an estimated 25 million more Europeans. Sound familiar? That comes to some 41 million Europeans who died from all causes during the war, a sizable percentage of the European population. Death on this scale had not occurred in Europe since the Black Plague of the Middle Ages. Sound familiar? This added to the feeling of bitterness and gloom that ran throughout Europe, and this anger was primarily directed at the hated and despised Germans. Hated and despised as the result of the anti-German propaganda, Europe wanted to punish Germany and would do so with the Versailles Treaty. The terms of the treaty as finally hammered out by the victors of the war, Britain, France and the United States, were harsh by any standard. The idealistic President Woodrow Wilson had presented his 14 points as the basis for a fair and just peace settlement, but they were mostly ignored after the armistice was signed, especially by the French. The French had no interest in a just peace. What the French wanted was revenge, that and their two provinces back. The provinces of Alsace and Lorraine had been taken from France by the victorious Prussians after the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceur considered Wilson sanctimonious and naive and privately ridiculed his 14 points. He sneered that God Almighty only had 10. Basically, the terms of the Versailles Treaty were as follows. 28,000 square miles of Germany's territory and 6.5 million of her people were handed over to other countries. Alsace and Lorraine went to France. Eupen and Malmony were given to Belgium. Northern Schleswig went to Denmark. Horsis and to Czechoslovakia. West Prussia. Posen, Upper Silesia and Danzig went to Poland. Danzig was placed under Polish management, but was designated a free city under League of Nations supervision. Memel to Lithuania and the Saar, Germany's industrial heartland, was put under the control of the League of Nations. All of Germany's overseas colonies were taken away. Severe military limitations were imposed. Germany's army was reduced to 100,000 men and was not allowed to have tanks or armoured cars. Germany was not allowed an air force and was allowed to have only six capital naval ships and no submarines. The west of the Rhineland and 50 kilometres, that is 31 miles, east of the Rhine River was made into a demilitarised zone. No German soldier or weapon was allowed into this zone. The Allies, meaning Britain and France, were to keep an army of occupation on the west bank of the Rhine for some 15 years. Financial penalties were equally severe. The loss of vital industrial territory would impede all attempts by Germany to rebuild her economy. Coal from the Saar and Upper Silesia, in particular, was a vital economic loss. The coal went to France and England. 
Germany's richest farmland was given to Poland. Reparations were to be paid to the Allies in an amount to be decided by the Allies at a later time. It seemed clear to Germany that the Allies intended to bankrupt the country. Germany was also forbidden to unite with Austria to form one large German state, even though both Germany and Austria wanted it, in an attempt to keep her economic potential to a minimum. General terms of the treaty included three vital clauses. One, Germany had to admit full responsibility for starting the war, the war guilt clause, clause 231. Two, Germany was thereby responsible for all the damage caused by the war and was therefore required to pay reparations, the bulk of which was to go to France and Belgium. The amount of reparations was not set at Versailles, but was to be determined later. In other words, Germany was to sign a blank cheque, which the Allies would cash when it suited them, in whatever amount they decided. The amount was eventually put at $33 billion in 1919 type dollars. Three, a League of Nations was set up to keep world peace, though Germany was not allowed in as a member. After agreeing to the armistice in November 1918, the Germans believed that the peace treaty to follow would be based on President Wilson's 14 points, which would have ensured a fair and just peace and that they would participate in drawing up the peace treaty. They had, in fact, signed the armistice and laid down their arms with that understanding. Instead, the treaty was drawn up without German participation and then handed to them as a diktat, which the Germans were required to sign without discussion. The term armistice is generally understood to mean a cessation of hostilities while a peace treaty is worked out. That is what Germany signed on to but the Allies treated Germany as a defeated foe instead. According to the accepted meaning of an armistice, Germany should have had full participation in the peace process. The German delegation was astonished at the harshness of the treaty. They were particularly offended by the charge that Germany had started the war. In the minds of Germans, Germany had been fighting a defensive war, been fighting a defensive war, imposed upon by Russia and France, and soon afterwards by Britain. The way Germany saw it, France and Russia started the war. The officer sent to sign the Versailles Treaty refused to do so. To say such a thing would be a lie, he said. The German Chancellor, Philip Schneiderman, resigned rather than accept the treaty, saying, May the hand wither that signs this treaty. He characterised the terms of the treaty as unbearable, unrealisable and unacceptable, and proclaimed that the treaty would make the German people slaves and helots. The German people were both shocked and outraged over the terms of the treaty. As a symbolic protest against it, all forms of public entertainment throughout Germany were suspended for a week. Flags across the country were lowered to half-mast. Some wanted to start the war again, but Germany's leaders knew that that was impossible. There was nothing they could do. The German army had disintegrated and gone home after the armistice was signed and Britain was maintaining a starvation blockade around Germany, letting nothing in and nothing out, causing the deaths of thousands of German civilians every day. Britain declared that the blockade would be maintained until the German representatives signed the treaty. Finally, Britain and France gave the Germans an ultimatum. Sign the treaty within four days or be invaded. The British and French armies were still intact. A German representative finally signed the treaty in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles on June 28, 1919. He was later assassinated under mysterious circumstances, no doubt the result of having signed the treaty. The treaty was signed, but only reluctantly, and without the slightest intention of actually cooperating in its imposition. In the words of the British historian A.J.P. Taylor in his book, The History of the First World War, 1963, though the Germans accepted the treaty in the formal sense of agreeing to sign it, none took the signature seriously. 
The treaty seemed to them to be wicked, unfair, dictation, a slave treaty. All Germans intended to repudiate it at the same time in the future, if it did not fall to pieces of its own absurdity. In one last gesture of defiance, after the treaty was signed, the captured German naval ships held at scupper flow were scuttled by their own crews. Let's take a look for a moment before we close this particular chapter about German villainy and the travesty of what that means by looking at the numerology of the date of the signing of the Versailles Treaty. June 28. So what we have is the 6, the 2 is 8, 8 and 8 is 16, 16 and 1 is 17, 17 and 9 is 23, 23 and 1 is 24, 24 and 9 is 33, 3 and 3 is 6, 6 is the numerology of new beginnings. So there is a certain auspicious correlation to the forceful new beginning under any and all circumstances by what was now to be the Republic of Germany. 